could do something crazy. Let's stand and read the Bible. How about that? Let's be a little archaic and stand. That way you'll get warmer <laughs> when this London weather. I feel like downtown London. Maybe it's, maybe it's me. For some reason, this is my first time in Houston, my first time in Texas, so I always have this vision of hot and dry, and this is cold and wet, and I'm still wrapping my head around it. Like I saw a deer crossing sign on the way over here, and I'm still trying to get that through my head. I just don't have deer. Cattle, maybe. Deer. It's hard. Where did you see the deer? I saw, I saw Bambi. I saw one of the deer. She ran right in front of across me, and she had good speed and good height, and she was eating well, so she was... Hunting size. Oh. All my bow hunters. <laughs> okay, turn to, we mentioned this verse in passing yesterday, and it's in my mind, and I read it. It's one of those things in the Bible, when you read the Bible, you, you have this question, you said, did God really do that when you read it? Or another one is, did so-and-so really, did, they, did that really happen to that person? So this was my, did that really happen to that person? And I won't read all of it, but... Uh, I want to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, all the way up to chapter 12, verse 10. But for the sake of um, the children, we won't. <laughs> chapter 7, we'll start with verse 7. We'll read just 7 to 10. Paul says, unless I should be exalted above measure, and it's kind of a horrible place to start, because the first thing you want to ask is, what is he talking about? Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. He kind of says that twice, exalted above measure. What does that really mean? It means to see myself specifically outside of how God sees me. So unless I see myself outside of God's, how God sees me, this God allows this to happen. Then he says in verse 8, for this thing I besought the Lord three times, meaning I prayed to God three different times, and I wanted God to take it away from me. All of us can identify with verse 8 because we've all asked God to do something or take something away. And we've asked him more than once. <laughs> It'd be great if it worked one time. Paul says, I did it three times. And it, did, it seems like it didn't happen because he didn't get what he asked for. We've all experienced verse 9. Because how many times have you asked God to do something or you ask God a question for something and he says something else? It's like you ask your mother, can I, go, can I go play outside? And she says, go clean your room. And you're like, that wasn't the question. <laughs> so you ask God, God, could you do this? And God said, go do that. And that wasn't the question. So in verse 9 he says, unto, he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. It's interesting he didn't say my weakness. It says my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, but he does own the infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in the very thing that I glory in my infirmities and my reproaches. And then he says in the next verse, as I turn the page in my King James Bible, in necessities and persecutions and in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. God, we ask you just to bless your word and bless your message today. Thank you so much for the assembling of ourselves together for the purpose of Christ. Bless this time, we pray. Speak to us through your spirit. Help us to respond in faith, we ask in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, there's a lot I want to say today, but not, I'm not sure how much God would allow me to say today. Uh, grace is one of my favorite topics, and I can talk about grace for a long time, because I love that. Uh, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I am what I am by the grace of God. And the longer you walk with God, the more you self-define as gracious. First of all, when you get saved, you're like, I'm lucky. <laughs> then later on, you realize, I'm blessed. Like, hey, I'm blessed, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. But then when you start using the word grace, you start getting more definitive because grace is why you're blessed. It's more definitive. So if you look at Paul's life, and like I said, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, all the way to chapter 12, verse 10, you will find 26 things that Paul went through, 26 different problems. And that's what I ask myself the question, 
did this really happen to him? Really, 26 different things. You look at his life here and you see a lot of things are happening in Paul's life and it's mostly trouble. And if you say to yourself, if Paul's living a good life and he's got trouble, how much more me? I'm not living as good as Paul. <laughs> and I probably got more problems, actually. So Paul's got 26 and I have 2006, right? <laughs> Mostly trouble. And when you walk with God, it, don't you got to get this vibe like God is always leading you into trouble? <laughs> like you want to say, he le- you, you love the verses, he leads me beside still waters. But then you see Matthew 4. God says in Matthew 3, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. In, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, and he leads him into the wilderness to meet the devil. So if you're pleased with me in chapter 3, why would you lead me into the wilderness in chapter 4? That's not what you do with somebody you're pleased with. So when you talk to somebody and say, God loves me, God loves you, and then he leads you into trouble, you say, that's not what love looks like. I don't want that kind of love. But that's what happens in mostly with Paul's life. I mean, if the great apostle Paul has a life of trouble as a servant of God, how much more you and me? Really? How much more you and me? In verses 7 and 8, there's trouble in him. In verses 20 and 21, there's trouble in the church. And then in verses 13 and 14, there's trouble against the church. It's like constant trouble. Constant trouble. It's amazing. And watch God's counsel here. God's counsel to Paul in the midst of trouble is not, hold on, I'm coming. Just hang in there, Paul. I'm coming, like the Calvary. We, we ever had that Calvary mentality with Jesus? Like, Jesus, I'm in trouble. And he's like, on the horse, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. And he's like, yeah, you're in trouble now, devil, because my God is coming, you know. That wasn't what he said. And he didn't say, okay, do the best you can, fight as much as you can, and I'll come in later and finish it. You kind of like that solution because you get that solution. Um, it's Okay. I don't want Braden to miss out on the opportunity around the corner. <laughs> you know, when you're a new kid, you come in, you're like, what's happening around there? There's kids over there. I'm just going to go in. Adults are kind of slow, but kids are like, I'll go find out what's going on back there. <laughs> but God doesn't tell me to start solving my problem, and then he gets in later. But many of us treat God like that, like, I'm going to try to tackle this without God, and then when I can't solve it, I got, you're right, I can't do it, get in. And God's like, that isn't the plan. He didn't say, man, here's sin, figure it out, and later on I'll get in there and help you out. And some folks that don't know scripture think that's what God did. We sinned in Genesis 3 and said, I got a prophecy to help you down the road, but man, you try to fight it for 3,000 years or 4,000 years, and when you can't, I'll come in later and solve it. That's not what happened either. And then, number three, he didn't do the thing we want us to do. He didn't say, you know what? God, I'm in trouble. Take me out. He didn't take him out. Put that together. We said this yesterday. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in jail. God gives them a way out, and they don't take it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, Paul wants a way out, and God doesn't give it. That's confusing. It's not fair. How does that work? <laughs> and then his only counsel to Paul, once again, is a thing that Paul never asked for. He never asked for grace. He never asked for help. He asked for escape. I prayed to God three times to take it away from me. Some of you might be in this room. I prayed to God to take away my spouse, and he didn't take her away from me. He didn't take him away from me. I prayed to God to take away this job, and he didn't take it away from me. I prayed to God to take away my neighbor. I prayed to God, take away COVID-19, and he didn't. I prayed to God to take away the masks, and he didn't. I prayed to God. But his counsel to Paul is his counsel to us. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. If I don't understand his grace, that's confusing to me. So it's, it's difficult to be to find sufficiency in what I don't understand. It's hard, actually. Right? But then he says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. I've often thought about that. Because in this situation, there's more things weak than just me. The situation could be weak. It could be things in the problem that are weak. So I'm not the only weakness that God's strength is manifested in. 
I'm just a beneficiary of one of the things that are weak that God can show himself strong in. I've always interpreted that like God wants to show his strength in just my weakness. No, in all weakness, he's going to reveal his strength. And that's why he didn't personalize with a personal pronoun, weakness. So God is saying to Paul and saying to us, even this morning, the grace is enough. But grace doesn't seem to be enough if you don't know what grace is. If you ask somebody to tell you, hey, there's grace for that, and you don't know exactly what that is. It's like you're working with a mechanic. He says, I got a tool for that. He whips out the L-shaped wrench. He says, yeah, this is the tool for it. This is sufficient for this. And you don't even know how to use the wrench, but you're staring at the wrench trying to calculate how it works. He says, I know this thing really works for me. Well, it can't work for me because I don't know what it is. I don't know how to use it. But you have it. But I don't know how to, it's not useful to me. But I don't understand it. So what I don't understand, I avoid. I, I attack, actually. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And if you look at all the things I mentioned, I said there were 26 things that were in Paul's life that were mentioned here. There's grace. You can divide those two things into two categories. There are things in my life that come and they go. Paul says I was imprisoned. He said I was beaten with rods three times, lashes 40 times, stoned in Lystra. That's an amazing story right there. He got stoned in Lystra, dragged outside of town, stoned, got back up and walked in town. That's a reality TV show. Is that Paul? Didn't we just kill him outside of town? Yeah, I'm back. Hey, I'm thirsty. Imagine that. But this grace for things that come and go in my life. And then there's grace for things that stay. There's grace for things that stay. He said, this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart, and it didn't depart. This thing. There are things that come and there's things that go and there's grace for that. And there's things that come and stay and there's grace for that. Because God says grace is not necessarily an escape. Grace, grace is not a way to get out. Grace is not a get out of jail free card. Get out of trouble free card. He said there's going to be some trouble that doesn't go anywhere. It's going to be some things that, okay, God, I'm praying. Do something and God's like, nope. I needed to stay. What? I needed to stay. And this thorn was allowed by God because it had a purpose. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 talks about we can come to the throne of grace. The throne of grace. The throne is an instrument of drawing me to with the, the thorn, rather, is an instrument to draw me to the throne of grace. Because as, as beautiful as Hebrews 4.16 sounds, we don't wake up and say, yes, I want to go to the throne of grace. We don't. But God will use the thorn to bring me to the throne. Because I wouldn't know. I mean, it says you can come and get it, but who goes and gets it? Nobody does. So the throne was set not to limit me with God, but to lead me to God. So I don't fear the throne, the thorn. I see it as a bridge to the throne. Because for most of us, we don't willingly go to the throne of grace. I love to be romantic and say, you know, and religious, yes, I run to the throne and I will run. Sure, you sing that song, but do you? No, I run to the throne of me. Because when I come to the throne of grace, it's very clear who God is and who I am. Because he's on the throne and I'm not. So why would I run to a place where it reveals where I am and where God is at? I like my throne. I'm throne of me, so I run to the throne of me. I'm not drawn to the throne of grace. The girl of grace, oh, so if he's there and I'm here, that says who he is and that defines who I am. I don't like that. So I'm going to go to the place where I can actually be on the throne. So I don't want to go to the throne of grace because I'm not on that throne. But God uses the throne, he uses the thorn to lead me to the throne. So the thorn is, that's why he says, I'm not taking the thorn away. Paul said it himself, he says it twice, he says, that I might exalt myself among, above measure. How do I exalt myself above measure? I put myself on the throne. You're throne in your life, captain of your world, leader of your ship. 
king of your kingdom. Build your, you build your house like I'm the king of my thing. This is my house. This is everything's the way it is. I'm, this is me. I'm in charge. My daughter asked me when, we, when she was a little younger. She said, Dad, if you ever have a baby, can I be in charge? You want to be in charge of all the, all the future children. I'm going to be in charge of all of them. It's in our hearts. We want to be in charge. It's in our hearts so bad. We want to be in charge. I'm waiting for my chance to be in charge. You know, the flesh is ambitious. But he said, my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in weakness. He didn't say my holiness. He didn't say my gifts. He didn't say my ability. He said, he said my grace when he says that statement, this is what God does. He doesn't tell you to choose. He brings you to a choice. He didn't say, well, you know what, Paul? You can choose here. No, he just said, Paul asked for this and God said that. I have to choose. That's what love always does, by the way. Love always brings you to a choice. Always. God loves you enough to give you a choice. That's what the word of God does to you when it comes in sharp in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It comes in definitive in 2 Timothy 3.16. And it brings me to the choice. It puts me in the corner. That's what a good teaching of the Bible should do. It should put me in a corner and make me choose. It doesn't choose for me, but it says you choose. 1 Kings 18.12, why halt ye between two opinions? Choose. Joshua 24, 15 and 16, choose ye this day. Choose. We were born and built to choose. We have the ability to reason for that purpose. The first institution of God on the earth was the, the, the institution of choice. To choose. That brings you to a choice. And I want you to notice between these two choices he's got to make, and what are those two choices? It's going to be either grace or it's going to be me. It's going to be the choice of my grace God's grace or my work. Today, Sunday, everything you do will be God's grace or your work. Romans 11 verse 6. And it can't be both in Romans 11 verse 6. You can't sit there and say, me and God did it together. You didn't. I like how folks try to put themselves, or the, I call it the double, the baby seat of grace. God's on the throne and you're in the baby seat right beside him. And we together built a great life. You know? Well, or the, the, here's a classic one. You know, when I found God, you didn't find God. You couldn't find, you couldn't find God. You couldn't find water if you fell out of a boat. There's no way in the world you could find God. Well, you know, I've been searching the globe. I've been to the Himalayas and I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and I found God after 35 years. You kidding me? You couldn't find God. He's standing right in front of you. <laughs> John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he came into his own. He prophesied for millennia about his coming, and they missed it. When you read John chapter 1, there's two things you notice. The first one is the number one description of Christ in his 26 in the first two chapters is light. The second thing you notice is the number one problem with man is comprehension. We missed it. You keep saying man miss it. God is right in front of his eyes. We used to say growing up, you can't see the forest for the trees. He's right in front of you. As we say growing up, he was a snake, he'd have bit you. He's right up on you. He's hey! He's just seen it. He's right there. All my country, I was, uh, lived in Virginia for a while, so all my, all my, all my southern is coming out. <laughs> Imagine that. Anyway. You can't, you can't have it both ways. It can't be my life is because of the grace of God and the work of me. Man, am I, I like to work. Don't you like to work? You come into a church, what is it here for me to do? Give me something to do to validate my Christianity. And the more you give me to do, the more spiritual I am. Why is he spiritual? Because he does spiritual things. Why is he humble? Because he does humble things. So he's defined by what he does. Just Genesis 3, we were looking for a job. Looking for a job since Genesis 3. The race of man looking for a job. And that's why in John 6, 28, they have Jesus in front of them. And he, by the way, he's been doing everything. Healing, feeding, doing all kinds of things. Casting out demons. And the disciples come to Jesus and say in John 6, 28, what must we do to work the work of God? Because they think God is about doing work. So tell us what to do so we can do what you do. <laughs> he said, they, he kind of arrested them with like nothing. Believe on the one who sent him. 
believe. I'm looking for a job. <laughs> what? The church is the HR program for religion. Please help me get a job. Give me something to do. I have guys sometimes come with, you know the pastor, I'm joining your church. What can I do? How about you sit and just receive? Whoa. Whoa. Wait, what? I'm, 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 wait a minute, I need a job because, you know, I see all these people doing things and I'm not doing anything and something's wrong with me because I'm not doing what they're doing. And God's like, can you receive? Can you do that? <laughs> Believe and receive? No, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I can clean the toilets. I can bring donuts. You know, I, I can wash the pastor's car. I can carry the pastor's Bible. <laughs> I can do that job. Well, I can be the armor bearer for the pastor. I leave him alone. I'm protecting him. Yes. Okay, you just sit there and just like, you know, come in and receive what God has to say to you and let his word change your life. Because you think your life is changed by what you do and your life is really changed by what you receive. Just like with food. Cooking food doesn't make you healthy. You don't get healthy until you eat it. And we're in Texas and we eat, so we want to eat it. He said, you got to choose. And what I like about these choices is that only one of them is proficient. Only one of them. One of them has a provision. My work, his grace. Only one of them is a provision for my life. Only one of them is profitable. Number three, scary version, neither one of them take away the problem. The choice that he gave did not solve the problem. It didn't remove it anyway. So if you think that if I live by the grace of God, I'll have no problems, then you missed it. Ever grace does not mean that I'm never going to have problems. Ever grace, never problems. No, not true. If people say, preach, hey, well, you, you live by grace, you'll never have problems, you'll never have difficulties. No. John 16, 13, in this world you shall have tribulation. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 and 13, those who walk with God or follow God will suffer persecution. So grace does not absolve you from challenges and trials. It doesn't stop you from having difficulties. I had a rough week. Yeah, it's true. I'm not going to tell you that you're not going to have it. You might have a rough week tomorrow, starting tomorrow. Well, then what is grace for? Grace doesn't take away my problems? No. Grace does not help me to escape my problems? No. Mm -mm. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say it at all. The secret to Christianity is not the removal of difficulty. It's revival in difficulty. God wants to revive me in it, not remove me from it. If that was the case, he would have taken Adam and Eve out of a corrupted world. The world is corrupted by sin. He cursed the world. He left his, the crown of creation in a cursed creation. Why would you do that? The, the world is so cursed. 1 John 5, 19, it sits in evil. If the world is so corrupt, thorns and thistles, why would you leave the best of your creation in it? And you call us the children of God. Why would you leave us in it? Because the secret that God is not trying to deliver me from it, He's trying to revive me in it. It's revival. He says, Paul, instead of choosing relief, choose revival. Instead of choosing escape, choose engagement. Choose engage me. Instead of trying to escape the pandemic, find God. Then your life is not pandemic defined. Oh, that was a bad year. You stop living by the calendar and you start living by Christ. I had a bad year. I had a good year. I had Christ and then the year doesn't matter. Colossians 3, 11, 1 through 3, I can, I can set my affections on things above. I don't have to live in the bottom. Define my life by calendars and television shows and, 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 and events. Well, that was a bad year. That was a good year. Well, that happened. And I'm, I'm living my life from crisis to crisis, from a problem to problem, event to event. It's like watching the news. They just, they just, the news runs from event to event, and you just hold on tight and ride with the news. Where is it going? It's always bad, never good. So the news is negative, and so are you. But that's what you're feeding on. But he says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Quantity of it is limitless. The quality of it is perfect. 
The timing of it is eternal. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, the grace of God. The grace of God. See, prayer wasn't the answer, and that's scary to say to a group of Christians on a Sunday morning who have deeply religious backgrounds. Since you were a little boy and little girl, you were taught prayer fixes everything. Paul prayed three times and Thorne didn't go. Dang it! I just thought I prayed to wake up, open my eyes, and everything's good. No. Mm-mm. Christ prayed and still, still got the cross. He prayed and still got the cross. Prayed. Prayer was good. Prayer was not the complete answer. Receiving grace was the answer. No half measures in Christianity. The thorn thorn stays, but I'll give you grace for the thorn. That problem person stays. You ever notice there's people you want to stay in your life and God just takes them away? There's people that you would, I wish they would go away. And God's like, they're right here. (laughs) Hi! You're like, oh my gosh, she's still here. Wow. (laughs) My grace is sufficient. With the trial in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 comes the provision. With the trial and the struggle and the challenges in the trial, grace is not for survival. How are you doing? I'm, I'm hanging in there. I'm not hanging in there. I'm not, I'm, I'm, we are not built for survival. We're built for revival. We're not built for, the church is not surviving. Do you have this image in your mind of thousands of years of church limping along with gunshot wounds and a, a bad knee from the war and a, a right eye that doesn't work and a memory that's not so good and sometimes I black out and don't know why. Is that your picture of the church? Really? Man, the church has been through hell. Yeah, we're just kind of hanging there surviving. We're huddling in the corner. And you get this survivalist mentality. You huddle in your Bible and you complain about how bad your life is. And you read your Bible. Oh, God, life is so... You get a picture of Paul the Apostle doing that. Have you read Romans chapter 8? Have you read Philippians chapter 4? Have you read Ephesians chapter 1 and 2? Does Paul sound desperate and survivalist? Well, we're doing the best we can over here. They're trying to kill me. They beat me with rods four times. They stoned me and listen. That sounds like a survivalist. No, not surviving. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made mature. That's interesting. In weakness. He's saying to Paul, my grace is enough. Another word. Let's, let's change the word there for sufficient. It also can mean satisfying. My grace is satisfying. Now it's a little bit better. Now you can think about it a little differently. My grace is satisfying. It's a source of contentment. In 1 Timothy 6 6. It's strength to meet the demand. It's the supply that is necessary for the situation. Now we're a little different now. We can think a little differently about grace. See, the grace of God is the only thing on the face of the earth that can satisfy man. The only thing. We were created to be only satisfied by the character of God. We were created that way. But we were also allowed to be tempted by things that do not satisfy us. God allows things in your life that will not satisfy you. He gives you the choice to choose something that satisfies and something that doesn't. My work, which is unsatisfying, you ever notice that when you work? There's a measure of temporal instant satisfaction when you work. But later, at some point, it just kind of grinds you, doesn't it? You you get tired of it. You're like, oh my God, I got to do what? Again? That's why when church becomes work, you don't even want to (laughs) go. I got to put on, and the things you whine about, I got to put on shoes, I got to bathe, I got to, are you kidding me? I don't want to do all that. I had with people in the pandemic were like, me and my wife just went radical, we didn't brush our teeth today. We just decided, hey, we're just going to completely not do anything. <laughs> I 
said, I'm glad you brushed your teeth today, talking to you. But Adam and Eve, was, they were satisfied in the garden because they had fellowship with the character of God. They were satisfied in each other via fellowship with the, with the character of God. Once they broke fellowship with the character of God, they were neither satisfied with each other or satisfied with their world. No satisfaction. Outside of fellowship with the character of God, I'm not going to be satisfied. I won't. It's like the person that's described in Haggai chapter 1. All these things, consider your ways. All these things you're doing, they don't satisfy you. You work and, you, and there's holes in your pocket. You eat and you're not full. There's no satisfaction. You ever felt like that? You're doing all these things. You're grinding and you're grinding and yet you're not happy. I've, I did the whole nuclear thing. I got the, the wife, the two kids, the, the two and a half kids, the dog. And all of a sudden, I'm not happy. Two-car garage, the iPhone, I'm still miserable. What happened? Because you ran and got things that didn't satisfy. Right? And you missed the one thing that does. The grace of God. See? See, the thing about the grace of God that satisfies me, the character of God satisfies me, not just in the good of my life, but also in the bad. I can find the satisfaction of God when I go through the bad in my life. I can find the satisfaction of God when I go through the good in my life. The grace of God is enough for all of my life. The character of God. We speak about the grace of God. We're not speaking about an aspect of God's character. A lot of people teach, well, grace is well. It's the goodness of God. It's the favor of God. It's, it's, it is that, but that's a small. That's a narrow thought concerning God's character. Grace is not a part of God's character. It is the expression of all of God's character and the manner in which it's expressed to me. That's Grace. So if God is merciful, he's gracious with the mercy that he is towards me. If God is patient, he's gracious with the patience to me. It's not like, well, you know what, this God gives me nice things. That's his favor. Yeah, it is, but it's more than just a nice thing. It's everything. All God can be to me is who he is. It's like all you can be to God is who you are. And all God can be is who he is, and who he is is his character and nature. How do you define someone? By their character and by their nature. That's how you define who they are. And grace is the expression of God revealing who he is towards us. In Isaiah chapter 30 verse 11, 11 verse 30, 30 verse 18, if I can think about it. God waits to be gracious to me. I want you to think about that for a second. That means God sits in eternity and waits for the opportunity for me to respond to the grace he has for me. We make God wait. That's shocking to me. That God would be patient enough to wait for me like, they don't want to receive it, I'll wait. And I'll wait. And I'll wait. You can't outweigh God. Well, they love to say we can't outgive God. You can't outweigh him. You're waiting, 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 waiting. Everybody else is giving up on you. You're never going to make it. And God's like, they are. In the fullness of time, they are. They're going to make it. Acts 17, verse 27, God is not far. He's just waiting. He's just waiting. But many people, they want satisfaction outside of God's character. Nothing satisfies me like the character of God. Nothing satisfies me like grace. See, in the character of me, I will never find satisfaction. Have you noticed that? There's nothing in you that satisfies you. That's why a lot of people don't like themselves. Let me trap you in a room alone with you for a while. Let me hate yourself. Like, I'm so sick of me. I'm such a train wreck. Wow. Am I really like this? So I ever tell you, you know, you're a jerk. And you go home like, yeah, I'm a bit of a jerk. Yeah, it's about right. Mm, it's about right. I am. So sick of me. You ever get sick of you? Problem is, you can't leave you. <laughs> I'm going on vacation. From who? From me. Can't do it. I'm right there. I'm like God. Everywhere I want to be, I'm right there. I can't get away from me. You want to get away from God, and, and you try to get away from you. In the character of others, there's no satisfaction. You know, you know why there's no satisfaction in the character of others? Because their character is just like yours. <laughs> it's corrupted. They lie, they cheat, they steal. Oh my God, I trusted you. What were you thinking? Would you trust a house with, with broken locks? No, I'm moving in. It's a beautiful house. The locks don't work and it's a, a bad neighborhood. Would you live in that house? No, but I'm going to trust the house anyway. Then thieves break in. What were you thinking? Of course they broke in. You trust a corrupted liar. 
We said this yesterday for wedding vows. From now on, I'm no longer using the word I do. I think in my life I've done 50 weddings at least. In 20 plus years of ministry, I've done 50 weddings. And I'm changing the I do. I'm not only using I do because I, I don't have confidence in their, their do. <laughs> I'm going to Ezekiel 37. God, Lord, you know. <laughs> do you take her? Lord, you know. Do you take him? Lord, you know. Because we don't know. I don't want to say I do what I can. Lord, you know. I hope. That's the new one. I hope. <laughs> you should. <laughs> Trust in the character of people. I will never find satisfaction. Have you notice how much people can dissatisfy you? That's why you unfriend so many people on Facebook. Because you are not satisfied with them. And you add somebody to your Facebook, your 5,600,000 people, you add somebody else because you're satisfied for a few minutes. And then within a few minutes, I'm unfriend. Left swipe. No. In the character of this world, you will not find satisfaction. Only in the character of God. The grace of God can I find satisfaction. Can I find satisfaction? Proverbs chapter 23, verse 20. The eyes of men are never satisfied. You're never satisfied by what you see. That's why when you choose a church, you choose a pastor, you choose God, you will never be satisfied by what you see. And if you make that choice by what you see, it will eventually disappoint you. Well, there's a reason why God says don't live by sight, because it doesn't work. We said it last night, over 70% of your vision is peripheral. Most of this, look around this room, from about this, about where my two hands are, everything that's outside of my two hands is purely memory. Your mind is reminding you what it looks like, and it's kind of blurry a little bit. You know why? Because it's not there, you can't see it. Your mind just fills in the picture. You're guessing, really. Half sight is guessing. That's what we say. You're eyewitness, really. Eyewitness, huh? You're standing 45 feet away in a rainstorm, but you could see that it was a short Italian man with a blue jacket. You could see all of that. Yeah, right. Sure you did. Beautiful eyesight, black jacket. Imagine. And isn't that what happened in the Garden of Eden? They broke fellowship with God, the character of God. And when, when you break character, when you break Fellowship with God, even in your paradise, it looks unsatisfying. You could have everything. When you break fellowship with God, what you have seems so unsatisfying. The kids are unsatisfying. The marriage is unsatisfying. The church is, everything is unsatisfying when I take off the veil of the character of God. When I look at my life outside of the character of God. When I look at my life without the grace of God, everything is unsatisfying. 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas broke fellowship with the grace of God and suddenly his call became unsatisfying. Galatians 1.6-9, the Galatians broke fellowship with grace and suddenly the gospel was unsatisfying. In Ecclesiastes, the legendary book by Solomon, he looked at, he broke fellowship with God and his entire life was unsatisfying. And Solomon had everything you dream of. Solomon had everything. And he was uns- his life became unsatisfying without God. We said this yesterday, two days ago, actually, Luke 12, 24, 25. All that you possess, if you see it outside of fellowship with God, is unsatisfying. It's unsatisfying. But before I can say that I'm satisfied as a believer, as a child of God, I have to know what satisfies God. Because what satisfies God is what's going to satisfy me. What satisfies God is what satisfies me. Like in Matthew 3, 17, we said, God the Father told the Son and said it publicly, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. He was satisfied in the... The, the, son, the son was satisfied in the words of the Father and the Father was satisfied in the Son. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5, not that we see ourselves sufficient of ourselves. I'm never going to be satisfied with myself. I'm never going to be pleased with myself. Did you know that? You're never going to be satisfied or pleased with yourself. If you look in a mirror long enough, you're going to see something that's not right. Is that a gray hair? Oh my God, it is. Wow. Where is my belly button? Man, it's gone. Okay. We're not sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. It's of God. God is enough for me. God satisfies me. 
Has to be that way. In every situation, I have an opportunity or the option for satisfaction. Did you know that? In every situation, in every circumstance, in every trial, I have the option or opportunity for satisfaction. You mean in a trial I can be satisfied? Yes. When I make a mistake, I can be satisfied? Yes. When things are not working well, I can be satisfied? Yes. How? Got to find him, his character, satisfied, no matter what. I have, the op- I have the option of satisfaction in the sufficiency of God. Paul, the writer of Hebrews says in verses thir- chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, he says, let your lifestyle be without covetousness. Why? Because I have satisfaction in God. Be content with such things as you, has, as you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, verse 6, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what men will do to me. I have a satisfaction in the sufficiency of God. But we try to find our own sufficiency. We try to find our own satisfaction. And that frustrates us. What we do is this. When I try the other option, my work and not his grace, I frustrate grace in Galatians 2.21. I frustrated. You know what that means to frustrate grace? It literally means that God is waiting to be gracious and I don't want God's grace because I think my work is better than God's grace. I think my work will work because you always back your own plan. You sing your song the best. Like, well, you know, there's a way to do it. I know what I'm doing. How many times have you said that and then later on regretted that because I didn't know what I was doing, but now you can't admit you know what you're doing, so you just keep driving that in. I'm going to keep trying it. My plan, my grace, my work. That was Peter's problem. That was Paul's problem. They kept trying to work. And they, by the way, they were hard workers. Hard workers. But they both had to learn the sufficiency of the grace of God. They both had to learn that. See, the sufficiency of grace is this. It's not that I work for the grace of God, but the grace of God is working for me. That's a hard word to say. Because you're thinking in Philippians 2.12 that I'm working out my salvation. But Philippians, the next verse says, but it is of God both to will and to do to his good pleasure. So it's God that's working in me, not me working for God. I'm not an employee of grace. I'm a vessel. It's different. God's not, God, the kingdom of God, God's not looking for workers as far as employees. But when you hear that word, I'm working, I'm a worker for God, you think it's, you're going to down to the factory. Punch in. I'm going to punch in and do my part. We have all those worship songs from the 60s and 40s. I'm work, bringing in the sheep. We're working hard for God, and we're working. I'm working my way to heaven, and I'm working, and I'm working, and I'm working. I don't see a verse where God gives me a job. In fact, in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, if it's work, then I have a debt. And if I have a debt, then what did Jesus Christ pay for on the cross? He paid for some of the debt, and then I got to work off the rest. It's like, imagine you owe God a million dollars, and Jesus came along and said, I'm going to pay 700000 but the rest of your life, you're working off the other 300000 That's what a lot of Christians do. They, they rob Jesus Christ of the veracity of the cross. They negate a complete salvation. It's like God did his part. And thank you, Jesus, for doing your part. And make no mistake, I want to do my part. And then watch the, watch the cast system. Watch the cast system. And I'm doing my part better than you've been doing your part. Luke, Luke 18. Lord, I'm so happy that I'm doing my part. I'm not like him. He's not doing his part. And then I look down at him and I'm like, look at Mike. Like, oh my God, Mike, whoa. And I pray in relative righteousness. I pray and say, I wish Mike could be like me. Because we both got to do our part. And I'm doing my part. And Mike's not doing his part. I'm wondering if Mike is even saved because he's not doing his part. Wow. But he brought donuts, and that's why he's born again. Okay. Brought the donuts. <laughs> Work. But what did he say in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8? God is able. Circle those three words. That's so good. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. God is able. That's a great beginning to any conversation. You know what? We can't. God is able. Hey, yes. Okay. Let me, just slow, let me slow my complaints down. Let me reduce my grievances to God. 
God is able to make, and I love that part to make, is, it means that he's doing his pu'io. It actually means that the work is being done by God and not by me. He didn't say God is able to have all grace. He says to make is something that he's doing. It's the same word in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus told Peter, I will make you a fisher of men. It's poeo. It literally means that God is doing it on the basis of a plan and a purpose. And I am a recipient of it, not a victim of it, but a recipient of it and a blessed by it. God is able to make all grace abound. And it doesn't mean I just received it. It means that it floods me. It's not like I, I, it's not like it's a virus that I've got to get or an injection or a, a what is that thing called a vaccine and I got to wait for it to take for three or four days and go get a second shot of grace. Well, God, I'll come back in three weeks and get a second shot of grace and then it's all in my system and then I'm inoculated from worrying. No, it says here. He says all grace abound, abound. He says toward me that you have always having all sufficiency in all things. I like that purpose clause. That you may abound in every good work. There is a Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. There is grace that's creating an ability and a capacity in me for every good work. It's not me doing the good work to get the grace. It's me getting the grace to do the good work. Mm. People teach you got to do the good work to get the good grace. Ah. But God is saying, here, you get the grace and then you do the good work. Wow. Imagine that. God's asking me to do something and he gives me the ability to do it. Yes. Preach it. What kind of God would he be? He says, hey, I want you to go do something. Go pick up that car. Good luck with that. I know how that's working for you. I did see the spare tire move a little bit. Excellent. Keep trying. God's not my cheerleader. Come on, you can do it. He's not my morale booster. God's not your smooth, motivational speaker that we have today in pulpits. Hey, you can do it. There's 17 ways that you can do what God's telling you to do. No, God's giving you an ability. I'm empowering you. God's God's not doing this. God is not motivating me. He's empowering me. He's doing what a motivational speaker cannot do. He's actually infusing me with an ability. You know what the word encourage means in the New Testament? It means to put in strength. Not not giving me a good word. That's a eulogy, by the way. When a guy gives you those motivations, that good word is a eulogy, to speak well of you. That's a eulogy. That's what the word eulogy means. To give you, speak well of you. God is not in your life speaking, giving you eulogies. Come on, you can do it. Come on. He's not your Nike motivator. With the, with, the, with the track shoes on and the motivational speaking, you can do it. Come on, come on. Ah, good job. He's not coaching me. He's carrying me. It's different. He's putting the strength in me. That's why it says my strength is for your weakness because if, if there's strength here, there's no place for strength. But if there's weakness, there's a zero. There's space for strength. But as long as you're strong, as long as you're strong God can never be strong. So the very thing they're telling you to be, it removes God from the story. He says, I made the rich, the poor rich in character and power. Not the powerful, more powerful. That's not how God works. Grace for my life. My grace is sufficient. In your weakness, in your sin, in your failure, in your situations, grace is all that God gives and grace is all that God is. The grace of God, the character of God. And I grew up in a church, a Baptist church, great church, great people. And I was always taught that grace was just a characteristic of God, a characteristic of God being nice to me, the God blessing me, God favoring me. It gave me a narrow, very narrow perspective of the grace of God. Because all I thought was when we talked about grace, it was, it was Easter or it was Christmas. And it was Mary and Mary was graced with the person of Christ as a vessel. And in certain denominations, she also was perfect. I have no idea how they got that. Because just because you carry, just because you carry Christ does not make you a Christian. Mm. Or case in point, just because you, you walk in a library doesn't make you a book. It just doesn't. But then all of a sudden, when you begin to study out what is the grace of God, you realize it's more than just favor. More than favor. There's, there's a character behind it. It's more than just one aspect. 
Because we have manifold problems in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, and we have manifold grace in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 for manifold problems. And I found that the favor of God was not enough for all my problems. Favor of God was just good for blessing me and giving me things, but it was not good for empowering. It wasn't good for everything. When you read 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, it speaks about grace settling me. How does favor settle me? I'm excited at Christmas. I'm not settled. Hey, you got a gift. It's favor. But it didn't, it didn't settle me. It didn't establish me. It excited me. So I found it was insufficient as a definition for the sufficiency of God. So 2 Timothy 2.15, you study to show yourself approved. When you study the topic of grace and you find it's more than just favor. You find that's a very narrow definition. All of a sudden, you, it's like studying holiness and saying holiness is just doing good things. It's a bit more than that. Because holiness is not a behavior. And that's another conversation for another day. But weakness. I love weakness as a Christian. Learn to love weakness. Not to strive to be weak, but to recognize that you are. Christianity is the only, the only religion that really identifies that weakness in its proper perspective. Some religions teach weakness is sin. You must be strong. Others teach that you have to be completely weak. You have to purpose to be weak and try to be weaker. God puts it in the right balance. He says, yeah, you are weak, but in your weak, I'll be strength. Weak is not bad. He said, weak is not a goal, but weak has a purpose. There's the difference. Weak is a reminder to me. Weakness is a reminder to me that my sufficiency is only in grace. That's what weakness is. The weakness of my character demands that I require another character. But what do you do with that weakness? Do you try to improve your character? Have anybody ever even tried to improve your character? Hmm. Really? God is not asking. What God did is Jesus Christ didn't die to improve your character. Amen. He died to replace it. Yes. He gave you an option you didn't have before the cross. It's replacement. That's it. See? Prison is behavior modification, by the way. The church is not a prison. I'm not, in, I'm not in church for behavior modification to improve my character. Like he, he, was a, he was a murderer. Let's put him in jail for 10 years, and when he comes back out, he'll be socially fit. We rehabilitated his character. God is not trying to rehabilitate your character. That's right. Well, he's got to do what you, without a fix it up program. Well, this, what's that old show, This Old Bad House, where they renovate a house? It's not a renovation, it's replacement. Ezekiel 36, 26, he didn't renovate your heart. He gave you a new heart. He didn't, he, the, the bad spirit you had, he gave you a new spirit, right? Psalm 40, verse 3, he gave you a new song. God didn't replace it. He's not into like, well, let's make it better. You know what? She's a liar. Let's make her lie less. <laughs> you know, he's a thief, but we can steal less. No. He says, weakness is just proof that I need a different character, and grace is how I engage it, how I experience it. My grace is sufficient. I, w- I have a lot to say. I was going to close with this. We do want to wrap today? Okay, I'll, I'll stop here then. I'm going to give you five things to expect in a trial. Better gracious. Five things to expect in a trial, but that'll be at the wrap, so we'll stop here. I just want to say this. There's trouble in your life, trouble in my life. How do I handle that trouble? Because God doesn't remove it. He challenges me to choose the right choice to how to handle it. How do I handle it? He told Paul. He gave him the answer he wasn't looking for. So never, never assume, let me say this this way. You pray to God for an answer and God gives you a word. Because your answer is narrow. You want answers, go to Google. You Google one thing, you get one answer. When you get 4,600 answers, but it's so specific. How, where is the closest Chick-fil-A? There's the address. Question, answer. God doesn't operate like that. God gives you a word. And then you find out that maybe his word doesn't address your question, but it addresses your life. An answer is for the moment. A word can be for your life. God gives you a word, and all of a sudden you're different. Psalm 68, God gave the word. God speaks the word. The centurion said, Lord, just speak the word. Give me a word. You might not give me an answer. Paul wanted an answer. Take away this thorn. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. That's a word. 
I can run with that beyond the thorn. I can run with that with my marriage. I can run with that with my kids. I can run with that on my job. He speaks life to my life. And not an answer to my, work, my question. This is not jeopardy with Jesus. Are you kidding me? Well, God, you know what? Uh, I got a question. What is? No, you're not getting that with God. You don't get that. You get life. Word. What, he, what did Peter say in John 6? Is, where can we go and get the word of life? He didn't say, where can we go and get the best answers? You want the best answers? The Pharisees have memorized the Pentateuch. They can give you plenty of answers. And by the way, what you deal with Pharisees, they usually give you just answers. When you meet a woman of God or a man of God, they have a word for you. When I bow my knee and talk to the Holy Spirit, he gives me a word. Not just answers. This is not the Bible answer program. Well, who was Cain's wife? Well, they give you an answer. No, I need a word. I need a word. Paul prays, Lord, take away this problem. I prayed for it. I need an answer. God, give me an answer. And God says, I'm not going to touch your answer. I could answer that, but that's not going to help you. You know, It's like when you go to the doctor and you've got a headache and you just want relief from the headache. And the doctor's like, what else is wrong? Well, I didn't come for that doctor. I just came for the headache. He's like, I'm here for the whole thing. What else is wrong? Well, let's try this. And the headache is just part of it. Yeah, that's it. You can deal with the fruit or you can deal with the tree. Paul's problem was fruit-oriented. And God said, I'm going to give you the tree. My grace is sufficient for your life. For your life. So as we close this morning, I know it's a unique thought to think about the grace of God because, frankly, how many conferences have you been to where we're going to talk about the grace of God? No, not really. It's not a popular topic because the character of God is not a popular topic, to be honest with you. Let me change the word for you character of God. When the last conference you went to on the character of God? You hear like little things about aspects of God's character. But how about the holistic approach of me, me and my character failing, but me looking in faith in the spirit to his character and then his grace is sufficient for me. I can look to him. How about that? All the things that are wrong in my life, there's grace for my life when things come and they go in this race, but things that don't go anywhere. I'm going to promise you there's some problems in your life that are not going anywhere. I got this thing with my memory, and I forget a lot of stuff. There's grace for that. Every, every, you know what? Every, every March, I have an episodic depression that comes on me like a, like a dark cloud for like three weeks, and then it goes away every March. There's grace for that. You know? When I eat, there's a tooth in the back, and the, doc, the dentist can't get to it. It hurts. There's grace for that. I got a neighbor who will not leave. He's been there for 26 years. They will not leave and they will not die. They're just like hanging around like a bad cold. And there's grace for that. There is. You know why there's grace for that? Because there's God for that. Yes. And when you say there's not grace for something, you're saying there's not God for that. My grace is sufficient for you. He didn't say for your problem, interestingly enough. He said for you, holistically, your yes. life. My grace is sufficient for you. Everything, soup to nuts. That's a word. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Not my current weakness only, but weakness, period. Weakness in the church, my grace is sufficient. Weakness in my marriage, my grace is sufficient. Weakness in my friendships, my grace is sufficient. Weakness in my insecurity, my grace is sufficient. Don't limit the grace to your problem that's current. My grace is sufficient in weakness. My strength is made perfect in in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Father, help us this morning. Thank you. Thank you this morning that whatever we walked in here with, smuggled in our pockets and our pocketbooks and hidden in our wallets, our secret problems, secret sins, secret insecurities, nobody else in this room knows about, or maybe everybody knows about. Things we're ashamed of, we're scared of, the things we don't even know about. Your grace is sufficient Because my God shall supply all my need according to his riches in glory. You are able to make all grace abound in all things. We thank you this morning, God. Help us. Is there anyone here this morning who doesn't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? The first gift of grace is a relationship with God, salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Simply speak to him. Talk to him personally. Your relationship with God begins with you and God. Talk to him, invite him in, put your faith and your confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Receive him today. And if you've made that choice this morning, 
Speak to Pastor Chris or myself after the service. Let us know. Let us help you. That's what the church is here to do, to help you walk with God. Not to force you to walk with God, but to stand with you and walk with you. Let us help you. Let's walk in grace together. Father, also seal these thoughts in our heart. Help us to think with you. We ask and pray and believe these things in your son's name. Amen. Break for a few minutes for lunch. Get some food here. Mike brought the donuts, so he's back on the Back on the A game. Right? The last time after this sermon. Mike brought the donuts. I think we get some other food here. We'll break for about 15 minutes. Um, remember, tonight at 6 30, uh, we're going to be meeting again here uh, for some fellowship for a wrap. Um, and, uh, and then we're going to have a wrap, a Q&A right after this, um, after we, while we're eating. And you'll have a chance to um, pick Pastor Ronaldo's brain. <laughs>